Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Welcome to SciShow Tangents. It's the lightly competitive knowledge showcase. I'm your host, Hank Green, and joining me this week, as always, science expert, Sari Riley. Hello. Yeah, you can't say as always because now I've had one absence. (laughs) (laughs) And our resident everyman who is always here, never absent, so far at least, Sam Schultz. I missed one episode a a long time ago, two years ago. Well, I forgot about it. So you (laughs) just need to let me live in ignorance. Okay. As this episode is going live, I think that we are just wrapping up the Olympic Games or have already wrapped up the Olympic Games. And I wanted to know what y'all's favorite Olympics thing is. Oh, Oh. I have an answer. (laughs) We watched this video in both English and Italian. So the high jump, I don't know much about Olympic sports, but we've been turning it on on every TV when we pull into a hotel room. (laughs) And basically... Two men, one Italian and one from Qatar, jumped very high. Yes. This shows how much I care about the sport part, but they both jumped very (laughs) high, and it was very emotional for both of them. Mm -hmm. They were like old buds. They were like friends for a long time. They've both been struggling with injuries. Mm -hmm. So during the Olympic event, they both jumped a certain height, 
And then when they had to do the next height to try to win gold, they both failed three times. Mm. And so it would have come down to a jump off where they would both, I don't even know what that would entail. They would both like try to jump higher yes. or just like do it, or another successful do the, jump. Do the original height that they had already done and see who failed at it first. Yeah. Just keep going until your body falls to pieces. Until you're exhausted. I don't know. I don't know what they would have done. Yeah. Um, a jump off situation. And instead, the guy from Qatar asks the ref that came over, is it possible to just give two golds? And within <laughs> like five seconds, they both looked at each other and like hugged and were like, two golds, two golds. Oh. And they were so happy and like yeah. crying and hugging each other. And they both won two golds. They were allowed to get two golds just by asking? Yeah, apparently they got an extra one sitting around. (laughs) Yeah. Like after this lifetime friendship and like storied competition, then they both Uh, were able to get go away with a gold medal and be like, I won this medal with my best friend. Also a jumper. That's really sweet. Yeah, it was lovely. Wow. I don't have like a big, long, beautiful story, but last night I would just happen to be watching the women's weightlifting, like uh-huh. deadlifting, I guess maybe it is. I don't really know. And whoever was shooting it was like a cinematography genius because they were like <laughs> getting like these beautiful shots of like their hands clenching the bar and like capturing the perfect moment on their faces where they were like, Bleh! and they were doing all these like when it's uh, blurry and then they make it not blurry anymore. Mm, they were doing- Rack zooms. Yeah, lots of those. And it was just like- <laughs> beautiful and I couldn't stop watching it. So that was a great one. Because I'm on TikTok, I've been following the US Women's Rugby Sevens team. These women, they're like on my TikTok for you page all the time and I'm seeing them and like I have a parasocial relationship with them now (laughs) and I answered one of their science questions. (laughs) I did watch their game against Australia where they were behind uh, to win that match and I was watching it live which I very rarely do and I did just sort of because I was a big fan of uh, these people's TikToks. (laughs) I got I got really invested in it. That's and cool. then luckily I wasn't watching the one that they lost, which happened at like three in the morning. So, ah, well, yeah, let's all go to the Olympics next time. How about that? I always forget that I like it. Like four years from now, I'm going to be like, ugh, the Olympics. Nah, that's not for me. And then it's a weekend and I, I'm like, I love this. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> Every week here on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one-up a maze and delight each other with science facts while also trying to stay on topic. Our panelists are playing for glory and for Hank Bucks, which I will be awarding as we play. And at the end of the episode, one of them will be crowned the winner. Now, as always, we're going to introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem, this week from Sari. First, take a mountain and punch a hole in the top. Then add hot rock. It's okay if it slops. Maybe (laughs) ash or gas that comes out with a pop. And you've built a volcano in this imagined workshop. In fact, our world is filled with fiery surprise, from flat shields to jaggedy peaks that rise, or sleepers that wake and cause sudden demise, or ripple effects of undetermined size. A sound wave round the world or layer of soot that makes temps crash down and crops go kaput, or undersea ridges, new land is output, the earth isn't as still as we think underfoot. The thing is, this magma keeps our magnetic field flowing, protecting our planet and giving heat to help life growing, saying beauty and destruction go hand in hand is knowing that weird geology is kind of normal as we keep on on going. Nice. <laughs> Our topic for the day is volcanoes. Sari, what's a volcano? So we have like a, a standard geological definition of volcanoes. Okay. Which there are openings in the Earth's crust where lava, molten rock, small chunks of rock, steam, other stuff under there erupt from it. 
So they can be a lot of different sizes. The lava can be a lot of different compositions, and sometimes it comes out explosively, and sometimes it just kind of like goops out like silly putty kind of. Mm -hmm. But like the umbrella term of volcano includes things both on land and underwater, like underwater vents where molten rock comes out and forms ridges or things like that. But then in my brain, the term starts to get a little wiggly when you talk about like volcanoes that just emit steam because then you're getting into like geyser Hmm. territory or like mud (laughs) volcanoes or cryovolcanoes on other planets, which is like Mm -hmm. a water erupting cone on the surface of a planet right? that we say is a volcano, but I don't think is the original flavor of volcano. Not really what we meant. But look, on other planets, ice is a rock. It is a mineral that a lot of things are made of. And then if it's like, if the whole, if it's a planet made of water and there's a crack and the water comes out, I don't know, that's kind of lava, right? Mm -hmm. And there's aliens on those planets who are like, those losers have volcanoes that have molten rocks coming out of them. And that doesn't count. Yeah. (laughs) Stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So as often is the case, this is a circumstance where as you look deeper, Things get a little confusing. The word volcano feels like it has got to have a cool origin story. I mean... Vulcan? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's very straightforward. So it comes from Vulcan, the Roman god of fire. They first applied volcano or like volcano to Mount Etna because they thought it was where Vulcan, the god, did his forging work. Uh And then I... Had trouble find like tracing back where Vulcan came from because it's not like they came up like they didn't just come up with the name being like we're gonna call our god of fire and metalwork Carl or <laughs> <laughs> Stephen and so Vulcan is possibly related to fulgare meaning to flash okay and so like fulgent is a new word that I learned means bright or dazzling and comes from a root word fulgare from even further back root bell. E-H-E-L, which means to shine, flash, or burn. Okay. Had to have a word for that. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Well, that means that it is time to move on to the quiz portion of our show. This week, I have a game for you because when it comes to learning about volcanoes, eyes can be pretty useful. Various scientific instruments can be useful, but ears can also be helpful. So today we're going to highlight the volcanic music that scientists have recorded in a game of Hear Ye, Hear Ye. Because I'm going to play you a piece of audio and you're going to have to guess if it is a volcano or if it is an airplane taking off. Scientists take audio of volcanoes. It gives them lots of useful data to compare and contrast different eruptions and actions that volcanoes undergo. And it's a useful tool because seismology... But it sounds really rumbly. (laughs) All right. So now, everybody, let's listen to this first sound and decide whether that is an airplane or a volcano. It sounds thrummy. It's so thumpy. It's very thumpy. All right. What do y'all think? Is that a volcano or is that an airplane? Uh, I'm going to guess... Not having been on an airplane in several years <laughs> and not having stood near volcano. But I know that volcanoes are like bubbly and sometimes are accompanied by earthquakes and changing the ground. And that does sound in my brain like what the earthquake part, like the bubbly earthquakey part would sound like. Mm. So I'm going to guess volcano. To me, it sounds too regular to be something from Mother Earth. 
So I'm going to guess airplane. Well, Sari is correct and Sam is not. That's not just a recording of an erupting volcano. It is an underwater erupting volcano called NW Rota-1. Bubbles. The recording was published by NOAA Ocean Exploration and it was made during a submarine ring of fire expedition in 2006, which used a remotely operated vehicle called Jason to explore (laughs) submarine volcanoes along the Mariana Trench. Uh, It's it's, a... Brother Mission Kevin and its <laughs> other brother mission Joel were also <laughs> part of the project. Not actually. Those two are fake. Okay. <laughs> what a cool casual name for us exploration robot. Yeah. <laughs> and you mean Noah like the National Noah, Oceanic? The National Oceanic and Atmospheric. Okay. Not just like some guy named Noah who took his brother Jason <laughs> down and was like, Jason, look at this. So the researchers could use the vehicle remotely as the volcano built up its eruptive activity over a week of time, releasing ash, lava blocks, and eventually glowing lava. And they reported that it was easier to observe underwater volcanoes compared to land ones because the water dampens the movement of the rocks and the ash. So Jason could just watch from a couple meters away. So that's really amazing. They also hooked up a portable underwater microphone called a hydrophone to record that dope audio that we just listened to. Round number two. Let's listen to this. Hmm. All right, what do you think? Is that a a volcano or is that an aeroplane? Is there any type of airplane specifically it could be? Could it be like a jet or a commercial airliner or? It is a human-made craft that flies through the air. Okay, okay. So to me, it sounded like if it was a volcano, it would be like a flamethrowery volcano. It reminds me of the sound we used to have a gas stove and mm. like it, that, mm. that would make when it would ignite kind of like a whoosh, like, a, like mm-hmm. an airy sound. So I'm going to guess airplane because it sounds airy, but maybe it's like a really fiery volcano. This to me sounds like the sound that somebody would listen to and then think, oh, I should make a game to make people guess whether this is a volcano or an airplane. (laughs) I think this is a volcano that sounds like an airplane. Sam is correct. It's a volcano that (laughs) sounds like an airplane. It's a recording of the Tungarahua volcano in Ecuador, erupting in 2006, recorded by Dr. Robin Matoza. The audio has been sped up 600 times because (laughs) what we're really listening to is an infrasonic recording that was too, like, low for us to hear. So volcanoes are very large, and the crater of this volcano has a diameter of about 300 to 400 meters, and the sounds they emit are very large, too, with wavelengths that can reach hundreds of meters long. And those wavelengths put them in the infrasonic range, which is below what is audible to us. But that means the sound waves can also travel really long distances, allowing for researchers like Dr. Matoza to record them. Hmm. All right, our first two are volcanoes, but now we get to listen to round number three. Our final round is this a volcano or an airplane? Hmm. I wish I didn't know so I could talk more about it. Ooh. Oh. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, this one seems like the softest of them all. The nice chill noise for us. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Was it pleasant or was it too metallic? You got metallic notes? and I feel like I'm at a wine tasting where (laughs) someone else says, oh, metallic notes. And I'm like, "Eh?" 
(laughs) (laughs) I did, I think. I I mean, my ears could be deceiving me, but like Hank alluded to, I feel like it almost has to be an airplane unless somebody's pulling a dastardly trick. Look, it's totally possible. There's no, nothing says that it can't be all volcanoes. Well, I'm far too traditional to guess anything, but this would be an airplane. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go volcano just to stop metagaming. It's a volcano. Well, Sari is the brave one and the correct one. No, they were all volcanoes. That, they were all volcanoes. What the heck? Look, that's not. We fair. gotta make them all volcanoes. Sometimes they're <laughs> gonna be too easy to mitigate. I feel betrayed. <laughs> this was another infrasonic recording from Doctor Matoza. This time it was Mount Saint Helens 2005 eruption, not the big 1981. Oh. And just for comparison, I've got for you a recording of an airplane taking off. This is posted on YouTube by PDX Aviation because they are not dissimilar noises. And weirdly enough, these similarities between infrasonic recordings and jet noise are actually valuable scientifically because it gives us insight into how these sound measurements correspond to the behavior of the volcano itself, which might in turn give us tools to remotely detect volcanoes. The Alaska Volcano Observatory set up infrasound sensors to monitor volcanoes that otherwise are difficult to monitor because of their remoteness or cloudy weather that delays satellite detection. Because infrasound isn't affected by sounds and can travel really long distances, these microphones and the shapes of the signals they transmit can help scientists determine from a safe distance what is going on inside a volcano. All right, well, congratulations to Sarah for coming out on top for that round. Next, we're going to take a short break, and then it'll be time for the Fact Off. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscription services you had, you think you could name them all? And before you just start naming streaming apps, remember that basically everything has a subscription these days. Video games, dating apps, food delivery apps. It's a subscription service world. We're just living in it. And with all of these subscriptions, it can feel like money is just flying out of your account. And that, frankly, sucks. But Rocket Money can help. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money can help you negotiate to lower some bills for you by up to 20%. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in total canceled subscriptions. Escape from the planet of the subscription services and stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Miriam Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster... (laughs) Use some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand, the only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora... Ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. 
It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts? It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for the Fact Off. Our panelists have both brought in science facts to present in an attempt to blow my mind. After they have presented their facts, I will judge the facts and award Hank Bucks any way I see fit. And to decide who goes first, I have for you a question. The eruption of Mount Tambora in present-day Indonesia was the most significant cause of the famous year without a summer, when global temperatures were 0.4 to 0.7 degrees Celsius lower than normal, and the entire northern hemisphere basically skipped a summer and instead experienced an agricultural disaster. What year did Mount Tambora erupt? This one, I feel like, is a fairly common piece of trivia, but I'm bad at numbers. I do remember that Mary Shelley, I think this is when she wrote Frankenstein, because her and her other writer friends, Percy, etc., all (laughs) went to an island and were like, oh, let's just hang out here while the world is cold and bad. It's cold and boring, yeah. Yeah. Cold and boring, and there's no food for anyone. Yeah, let's write monster stories instead. So... I'm thinking <laughs> maybe like uh, 1830 ah, is my guess. That seems so early for Frankenstein to me. I've been thinking 1880 this whole time, even before the Frankenstein thing, which I think you're exactly right that that's when it was. But I'm going to say 1880. Well, the answer, my friends, is 1815. So this was a tricky question because the year without a summer was 1816, but Mount Tambora erupted earlier than that. But it didn't really matter because neither of you were that close. It's only tricky if you know actually know the answer. Neither of us did at all. Yeah. In fact, you're both dummies who don't know trivia. So Yeah. I mean, I'll be very impressed for everyone out there who guessed either 1815 or 1816. <laughs> yeah, write us in if you did. Sari, you get to decide who goes first. I'll go first. So like we've been talking about, it's kind of easy to focus on the explosive or destructive nature of volcanoes, but molten magma is a big part of why life on Earth can exist for a lot of different reasons. 
For example, volcanic eruptions help replenish minerals on the Earth's surface, and because lava solidifies into rock formations, these minerals can stick around and be utilized long after a volcano has quieted down. Take Mount Elgon, a truly huge volcano on the Uganda-Kenyan border that is estimated to be at least 24 million years old. Mm. Scientists have classified it as extinct, which just means that we don't think there's been volcanic activity in over 10,000 years and we don't expect there to be anymore. But we've been wrong about extinct volcanoes before. Words are fake. (laughs) But in any case, (laughs) even without magma erupting, there's a different kind of activity that has been going on in this extinct volcano for thousands of years. Elephants mining. So under the cover of night, herds of elephants journey into caves within Mount Elgon and scrape their tusks against the volcanic rock, chipping off sodium-rich patches to eat. They're likely not getting enough minerals from the plants they eat or water they drink normally, so they found this resource and have passed down this tradition for generations. These igneous rock caves probably started as small nooks created by groundwater flow and collapse of the rock layers around 10,000 to 12,000 years ago, but elephants scraping and mining and eating the rock likely played a major role in making them bigger, so they're known as the elephant caves. Cool. The biology of this planet is so dependent on how energy and nutrients move around, and I sometimes struggle to think about the importance of rocks and minerals in sustaining life, but it's clear that even dormant volcanoes help support life on Earth over time spans longer than any human or any one elephant can survive. Wow. The elephant caves. That's wild. How far into these caves do they go? Not super, super deep. So some of the caves are 150 meters deep into the mountain at this point. That's very deep. Is it? Yeah, no, I was <laughs> I was imagining them going like an elephant or two deep. No, this has been happening for thousands of years. So, so yeah, that's like 492 feet. It's got to be like pitch dark in there. But there's the good minerals. Oh, my gosh. Wow, that got significantly cooler when I found out they go 150 meters deep. And now I've seen pictures of them. Yeah. And there's also tusk marks on the caves. I'll post some pictures on Patreon because it's Man. very cool. All right, Sam, it's a steep hill to climb. But yeah. what do you got for me? So in February 1943, farmer Dionisio Pulido was working in the fields of his farm in Michoacan, Mexico. Dionisio's farm was nestled in a fertile valley known as some of Mexico's best farmland, and he and his family were clearing the fields to get ready for the summer planting season when they noticed something not quite right. So a six-foot-wide, 150-foot-long crack had opened on a nearby hill that was definitely not there before. But it wasn't very deep, and like it was 1943, and there's not really much you could do about it. In 1943, you couldn't go call anybody about the big crack in your yard. So they just kept working. But then a little while later, the ground started shaking. And there had actually been like 20 earthquakes in the area over the previous few weeks and thunder-like rumblings. But again, it was 1943, and nobody could Google what was going on. So they were just like, all right. But this earthquake prompted Dionisio to look back up towards the recently discovered crack, which had now swollen to become a six-foot-high lump that was spitting out smoke, ash, and a sulfurous smell. And that is when Dionisio and his family decided to get the heck out of there. And it's a good thing that they did because within 24 hours, the lump had grown into a 150-foot-tall cone that was shooting flames like 300 feet in the air and spitting out walnut-sized chunks of molten rock. And by the end of the week, the newly formed volcano was 300 feet tall and had started seeping lava out of it. So how did this apocalyptic situation come about? Well, the Fertile Valley, where Dionisio farmed, was located in the Trans-Mexican Volcanic Belt 
Fault, which is a range of active volcanoes that runs right across the middle of Mexico pretty much, and all the mineral-rich ash that was shot out by the volcanoes over the previous thousands of years made for great farming, but it also meant your farm might be right on top of a volcanic vent. So this particular vent erupted in what's called a Strombolian eruption, which is kind of like a low-powered type of eruption, but it shoots out tons and tons and tons of little blobs of lava that cool in midair and then land on the ground as rocks, and all these blobs pile up on top of each other to form what are called cinder cones, which is how this volcano grew so quickly. It's called Paracutin. So as the months passed and Paracutin continued to erupt, scientists started showing up from all over the world to look at it. Journalists came from all over the world to document it, and there was even like a Hollywood film crew that came, and they shot a whole (laughs) movie using the smoking volcano as a backdrop. And that all sounds kind of fun and cool, but by the time the movie was shooting there, the volcano had been erupting continuously for four years, multiple villages had been evacuated, and 10 square miles of lava had seeped out of the base of the cinder cone and destroyed two towns completely. So fortunately, the volcano's formation didn't kill anybody, but all the ash in particular set of volcano shoots out during its eruption bump into each other and they can generate enough static electricity to form volcanic lightning mm-hmm. and three people ended up being struck by volcanic lightning and killed probably because mm-hmm. there were so many people screwing around looking at this thing mm-hmm. so finally in 1952 the volcano went dormant and by that time the cinder cone was 1353 feet tall scientifically speaking Paracutin was the first time that scientists got to study and record a volcano's entire life cycle from the initial eruption to dormancy, taking pictures, video, and measurements that people still use to this day to like in their volcano research. Uh, And now it's a tourist attraction where you can hike up to it and walk around the crater and you can see the stone bell towers of churches that were buried in the lava. And upon abandoning his farm, it said that Dionisio Polito put a sign up near the base of the newly formed volcano that said, this volcano is owned and operated by Dionisio Polito. (laughs) (laughs) I never really uh, got it into my head how a cinder cone would form. So that was very useful. Um, Like it comes down in sort of a nice Gaussian shape and that Uh is your cinder cone. A perfect distribution somehow. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry that people died. Yeah, but... They didn't get lavaed, so. Right. People get struck by lightning all the time, whether or not it's a volcano. And look, if you're going to get struck by lightning, it might as well be volcano lightning. Mm -hmm. That's the coolest, probably the coolest kind of lightning that could possibly get you. Yeah. All right. Well, Sam, you had, yeah, I'm sorry. It was an insurmountable elephant mountain that you, it was going to be hard to get out of. I know. I know. Like just, I'm just imagining them getting deeper and deeper every year as they scrape and scrape and scrape. It's really cute. It's very cute. And they're in the darkness all together, scraping. They're probably holding each other's tails. Like, oh, where do they go? They bring their babies with them. Yeah. They got to teach their babies how to scrape. We must protect the elephants! (laughs) And Sari is the winner of this week's SciShow Tangents. Congratulations, Sari. Good job. Thank you. Good to be back. Now it's time to ask the Science Couch, where we've got a listener question for our virtual couch of finely honed scientific minds. It's from at Andrew Zero. Would it be possible to manually vent a volcano to prevent it from ever explosively <laughs> erupting? I like that Andrew Zero sounds like a robot who would be trying to do this right now and is like waiting for our answer. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, my name is Andrew Zero and I need to know if I can protect you and the elephants as well. <laughs> Maybe that's what the elephants are trying to do. Maybe that's the reason why the volcano is extinct. They're, vi- they're venting it. <laughs> yes, it's their thousands of years mission to vent this volcano for humanity. Yeah. Yeah. 
How deep do you have to dig? I don't know. Like, I'd be worried about just creating the explosion by weakening the crust. I don't know how big of a hole or how little of a hole or what you'd have to do to get it to alleviate that pressure without it being kind of explosive when it happened. That would be my worry. It is a lot of pressure. Regardless of how you vent it, you're probably going to create an explosion. And that worry extends to scientists around the globe. (laughs) 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 Because there's a lot we actually don't understand about what factors lead to volcanoes erupting. We can like measure it once it's happening. We can measure the earthquakes and the swelling of the ground, and we can see the ground getting hotter, and we know it has to do with underwater or underground magma chambers building up pressure Mm -hmm. and that pressure suddenly releasing. We think there are a bunch of factors that could cause that to happen. So just like an excessive volume of magma, if uh, like one tectonic plate is subducting under another and just like oozing out a bunch of magma to build up pressure. Temperature changes causing some magma to crystallize. And so like changing the density of the flow can build up pressure pockets that cause an eruption or just like dropping a, a rock into a bucket. If you're like drilling above a magma chamber and rocks fall into the bucket, then they might sploosh out and and erupt. Mm -hmm. And so there is that big fear that we might cause eruptions rather than prevent them. But also near these magma chambers, they're so hot that the rock is molten. And so kind of like trying to like stick your hand into wet sand, it will just collapse around you. And so that Mm. would be a fear, too, is that even as you're drilling, the rock will just kind of like gloop up and plug the hole again. So Mm -hmm. your drilling efforts, though expensive, will lead to nothing. You also have to have a drill that isn't going to melt in a volcano. One thing that can't be melted by lava is a bomb because uh, <laughs> it just kind of blows everything up. Um, if it gets hot enough, yeah, if it it's gets still hot, a bomb. Eh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I say this because the United States Armed Forces have, in fact, tried to stop volcanic eruptions to prevent them from more explosively erupting by bombing the lava tubes. Uh, (laughs) to try and collapse them and just, like, stop the lava from moving around. That seems like a bad idea. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it happened in 1935 on the Hawaiian Islands Mm. uh, because a lava flow was going from Mauna Loa, the volcano, the active volcano, to the Hawaiian city of Hilo. And so they bombed the lava tubes and tried to collapse the channel walls. And it is controversial whether it actually had a positive effect or not. Because, like, according to geologists who were studying the site, like, the lava flows did slow down a little bit. But their main argument is that it was just, like, happening naturally. And then there were a bunch of pro-military people who were like, good job for bombing the volcano and saving lives. But it seems like from geological history, they think that, yes, while you knocked rocks into this chamber, it probably just reformed and the lava was still flowing And it was just, like, mostly luck that the flow started to stop because the volcano just ran out of material. Yeah, I mean, it'd be real nice, but, like, it's hard to be remembering all the time how utterly powerless we are to control global systems. And we cannot make lava not come out of the Earth because the Earth is very powerful and big. Yeah. And I think it shows how much we don't understand. Yeah. Like, yes, with things that we build, we understand that if we like poke a hole in a pipe, Mm -hmm. then water will come out another direction. But if you poke a hole in the earth, (laughs) that might not change anything. Yeah. 
Someday we'll learn how to defeat the earth. We're getting close. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to ask the Science Couch your questions, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we'll tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Thank you to at NadjaRuinsItAll, at OwlMay, and everybody else who tweeted us your questions for this episode. If you like this show and you want to help us out, it's really easy to do that. You can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash SciShowTangents and become a patron. And you can get access to things like our newsletter and our bonus episodes of shows like Q and Bidet and Poopy Peepipedia. And second, if you want to leave us a review wherever you listen, that's super helpful and it helps us know what you like about the show. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell, tell people, people about, about us. us. Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and Sam Schultz, who edits a lot of these episodes. Our social media organizer is Paolo Garcia Prieto. Our editorial assistant is Tabuki Chakravarti. Our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish, and we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you, and remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But, one more thing... Ardley Island is a small island off the coast of Antarctica, and on Ardley Island is a huge colony of Jintu penguins. By studying penguin poop in the soil of the island, researchers have determined that this penguin colony has been around for thousands of years, and that there were at least three different mass near extinctions of these penguins. Because there was less poop in the the ground, you know? Mm -hmm. So in times of less poop, there was less penguins. They eventually linked these mass deaths to the eruption of a nearby volcanic island named Deception Island. Oh! <laughs> really tricked those penguins, deceived yeah. them. Yeah. You think you can survive? You can't. All of your children will die now. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. But they made it. They did. Good job, Gentoo penguins. They were the ultimate deceivers in the, in the end. Take that. Yeah. They lived to poop to another day. <laughs> <laughs>